0: Familiar with this myself, you know, you're. This is as high a level as you can get in this arena that, that you've been in. Um, so you were definitely an innovator, right? Uh, but not a maverick where you're bucking the system. It seems like along the way. I mean, you're 650 citations. You worked in academia. You worked in clinical practice. Uh, you know, you worked in, in executive, you know, uh, management positions, uh, etc. Um, so how is it that now you find yourself in this predicament where uh, (laughs) you know what caused you to speak up here Uh, you're know, you about as traditional and high-level in the medical arena the public health arena as anybody can be yet uh, here you are now as a dissenting voice to what's going on right now what caused you to step up and speak out
1: thinking about it as you're talking maybe I am a maverick (laughs) Uh, you know the original idea that kidney disease could independently contribute to Manifestations of heart disease was an innovative idea, and I remember uh, some really long and lonely nights at the heart meetings where, uh, you know, I was being drowned out by big pharma and the cholesterol companies or uh, the blood pressure uh, lowering agents and others, and I was making the case that the, in fact, kidney disease could contribute to heart disease and vice versa, mm-hmm. and that was a long, long journey. Like many uh, important observations that happen in history, the first inkling. OF A NEW IDEA MANY TIMES IS DISMISSED. Mm-hmm. THERE'S BEEN JUST MANY, MANY EXAMPLES OF THIS. THE the FIRST TIME THAT uh, AN angioplasty BALLOON WAS USED TO OPEN UP uh, AN ARTERY OR TO TREAT A HEART ATTACK, THAT WAS TREATED WITH GREAT SKEPTICISM. Mm-hmm. SKEPTICISM IS AN IMPORTANT WORD, yeah. BECAUSE IT IS HEALTHY IN SCIENTIFIC DEBATE. VIRTUALLY EVERY INNOVATION THAT'S COME IN HAS BEEN MET WITH ENORMOUS SKEPTICISM, AND THEN IT GOES THROUGH A VETTING PROCESS. AND right. THAT VETTING PROCESS TAKES Dialogue, it takes interpretation of data, Mm -hmm. back and forth, getting viewpoints, identifying various stakeholders, ultimately getting a consensus and moving forward. It's very, very important, so skepticism is an important part of the scientific process. Probably necessary,
0: right? I mean, uh, without it, then, um, well, we end up where we are, so we'll we'll talk about that. One of the things that uh, that you're being accused of, you and many others, um, is misinformation. So how, and sometimes I hear the word disinformation, maybe we could talk about how to um, define or categorize misinformation versus information and the the debate that needs to happen in order to get to
1: the truth. Okay, maybe we should start with truth. Okay. So truth would be, um, let's say, the correct description of the state of affairs Mm -hmm. of something, that's truth and in medicine we use what's called inference Mm -hmm. and that's different than deduction Mm -hmm. so inference means we can never really get to truth Mm -hmm. what we do is we try to draw conclusions from things around the truth and we keep garnering information to know ultimately what we think is the best course Mm -hmm. so for example can I really know what's the best medicine for your body? Mm -hmm. Can I really know that as truth? I really can't. But through inference, by looking at clinical trials, research, studying you, studying your background, everything I can put together, I can conclude at least one point in time that yes, this is the best medical choice for you. Mm -hmm. Now, is that subject to change in the future? Absolutely. But we always arrive at that through a, a process of, of inference. So I, I want everyone to understand that that this idea that we're trying to, you know, get to uh, a, a, a immutable, uh, unchangeable. Uh, uh you know brick of gold that is just not going to change it just doesn't happen in medicine everybody knows that so we try to get as close as we can to truth through inference and we use uh the scientific method uh we use every single tool we can have epidemiology i have a degree on this we've heard a lot in the in the crisis about the role of epidemiology epidemiology is defined as the study of the distribution and the determinants of disease meaning how is the disease distributed as we see it in a population around the globe and what are the determinants, man, is actually what's, what's causing it? So if we can actually get to the distributions and determinants, then we can actually do interventional epidemiology, which is actually trying something mm-hmm. to see if we can modify the occurrence of disease or severity of disease or influences outcomes.
0: So when we get to now misinformation or information, when does information become misinformation? Well, there's a continuum, mm-hmm. right?
1: if i said um on one end of the continuum you are perfectly bald mm-hmm. and then on the other end of the continuum i said you have a bushy head of hair mm-hmm. right th- there are a lot of people would look at you and say well you know i see a little something there and uh, uh, uh and they they'd end up on a level of of continuum so clearly a bushy head of hair would be no that just can't be that's misinformation yeah that's misinformation Perfectly bald, is people say, listen, I see a little fuzz there, it's not perfectly bald. I mean, perfectly bald, obviously people could define it. So it's a continuum. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's obviously in the eye of the beholder, right? Mm-hmm. So someone must listen. What we do in medicine is we try to do some grounding. Mm-hmm. And at least what we can do in grounding is we can ground grind to something that's published mm-hmm or that's in what's called preprint, so it's at least out there in some assembled fashion. It's just not hearsay. Mm-hmm. And the preprint has not yet gone through a peer review process, but in the setting of emergency we're very reliant on preprints because that vetting process can be two to four years before something gets into print. It's yeah. not quick. Right. I'm the editor of two major journals. I can tell you the papers that I've adjudicated and arbitrated and decided on many, many months ago have not yet not, you know, been published. So we rely on preprints, we rely on published abstracts, we rely on uh, uh, peer-reviewed published manuscripts that are in PubMed, as much of the rapid information that comes out. And we do rely on the, ed- the editors and associate editors. Mm-hmm. And we rely on a corrective process. Now listen, if a paper comes out and it turns out to be wrong, mm-hmm. and it's viewed by the viewership, and there's a lot of input that it's wrong, it can be retracted. There can be letters to the editor to try to bring some uh, m- you know, modulation to its interpretation. All of that's fair game. And I have to tell the listeners, a redaction or a retraction is extraordinarily rare. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, as an editor for decades, uh, it would be a giant source of embarrassment if a, pub- a paper was published under my watch mm-hmm. through two or more reviewers, associate editors, myself, copyright people, other staff, and it turned out that it was a uh, fraudulent or or fake paper that had yeah. to be retracted and sadly we've seen that uh, I think the we've year. seen a lot of
0: that lately when people are writing things about uh, COVID or a COVID vaccine that suddenly now uh, publications are retracting so in your observation because you would have a keen eye to kind of spot what really is going on here uh, do you think that um, it's a they're yielding to political pressures or you know why suddenly all these retractions on uh, PAPERS THAT PASSED PEER REVIEWED AND GOT
1: PUBLISHED? WELL, TO MY KNOWLEDGE, THERE HAVEN'T BEEN THAT MANY, um, BUT WE HAVE SEEN SOMETHING HAPPEN IN THE MEDICAL LITERATURE THAT, I, in my, YOU KNOW, I'M IN MY FOURTH DECADE OF DOING THIS, THAT I'VE NEVER SEEN BEFORE. Mm-hmm. AND THAT IS uh, THE INTRODUCTION OF BIAS. Mm-hmm. AND uh, BIAS IN A SELECTIVE WAY. SO um, uh, WHAT CAME OUT EARLY IN 2020, I THINK, was an honest representation of what we thought was going on. It was a disease. It was a respiratory disease. It, it appeared to have emanated out of China. It looked like it was, you know, had hit Milan, Italy next, and then uh, different parts of the United States: New York, uh, West Coast, uh, California, Seattle, and and there were just rapid communications. What is this? What's happening? Uh, uh, quickly reaching back and in a lot of papers from the Chinese of. What is this virus? What does it do? And we were enormously reliant on the initial papers from China. And it was purely descriptive. And a lot of it was observational. When there were sick patients in the intensive care unit, and nephrologists and others said, listen, the, the, the lines that we're using to do dialysis were clotting. Mm-hmm. And there appears to be blood clotting. And then there were reports of blood clots being identified in patients. We, you know, within a few months realized, wow, at least in the very, very sick patients, blood clotting was a disorder. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of uh, what was going on, the radiographic findings, it looked like the CT scan had a characteristic appearance. Okay. And then we, um, the laboratory piece of this moved pretty quickly. And I ha- actually give America high marks on this in terms of the big push on how we got testing, and how quickly. We, you know, we had just realized testing was important. Uh, during the HIV uh, outbreak and epidemic initially, it was the same thing, as how important what it was to get testing. If this was something we couldn't test for, you can imagine mm-hmm. how difficult things would be. So as all this moved forward in a confluence through February, March, April, May, I started to become disturbed that we were three months into it and we just did not see these papers snapping into place of what we should do about the virus. Mm-hmm. What should we do? It looked like a lot of people were getting sick now. Millions of them were getting sick. Mm-hmm. It looked like there was a period of time at home, which was not short. Mm-hmm. You know, it could have been you know two days, three days, four days, ten days, two weeks four weeks at home and then into the hospital. Mm-hmm. So we had learned in this virus to actually organize the illness by days. Mm-hmm. What was day zero? What was you know, what was your first day of symptoms? And then when did you get your test? And then w- when other things happened? And initially what happened is the tests were uh, taking so long mm-hmm. that by the time we actually had a positive test, it'd be, geez, we're five days into this, seven days into this. Maybe we got tested on day four and we got the result back on day seven. So now we're 11 days into an illness and now we're trying to jump into an action plan but uh, what i saw is i saw a lack of papers of anybody describing any type of potential treatment Mm -hmm. and uh, then there was just some decisions made so for instance um the indian uh, medical council in india said for their uh, uh, healthcare workers and doctors they were going to take once a week hydroxychloroquine they just put it out there in a communication in march and we were like wow that's pretty impressive maybe they know something about this that we don't. They, they would, you know, prior data had supported hydroxychloroquine with SARS-CoV-1, and there was a lot of reliance on this. SARS-CoV-1, the first version of the SARS virus 17 years ago, and SARS-CoV-2 have a considerable overlap, maybe 80 to 90% overlap, that's my understanding. And uh, so that information was coming out, and nobody called it misinformation, mm-hmm. it was just information right. that came out. But I can tell you, I think I got to an alarm level in May, June timeframe. Mm-hmm. I said, listen, there are people dying now in significant numbers and there is no roadmap on how to treat this virus to reduce hospitalization and death. And as I saw my own patients getting this illness and looking at it, I I had come to a fairly commonsensical conclusion that if this virus was like a flu or like a cold and could be managed at home, fine, as long as the person didn't have to get hospitalized or die. That would be a good outcome, everyone would agree, because the hospitalization was unique. It was unique because it involved isolation. It was unique because it involved hazard to others, and there was great concern about healthcare workers getting contaminated, Uber drivers, taxi drivers, other relatives. The thought of somebody at home steaming with this virus, getting to the point that they just couldn't manage anymore, and then calling for help. You gotta get to the hospital somehow, right? Family members, uh, taxi drivers, Uber drivers, or a paramedics, contamination big time, right? Because someone is gasping for breath, and now they go into to the hospital, another wave of contamination there. So the hospital, hospital A was a bad outcome, and it was a high risk for exposure of others, and clearly hospitalizations, in my view, as an epidemiologist, must have fueled the spread of the illness, because what we saw was an amplification of wherever the outbreaks were. Mm-hmm. So if it started to get bad in New York, it got worse in New York. Mm-hmm. It's not like it just spread as a, as a ebbing wave across the United States. And so uh, as a leader in medicine, I started to get alarmed. And um, I I quickly got out the first publication, uh, and I took the liberty of publishing in my own journal. Separate editor decided on it, separate set of reviewers, and the title of the paper dealt with the fact that this outbreak is occurring in clusters and we need information. Mm Uh, We were getting deaths reported, but there wasn't any uniform report in hospitalizations. I said, listen, those two things count. These people being test positive in the community, it could be everything from somebody who has no symptoms whatsoever to somebody who's going to die, but that testing in the community, we're missing the hospitalizations, and it was a giant call. Hospitalizations, hospitalizations, we need them, we need them, we need them. We needed a national hospital census, 5,600 hospitals, 2,200 acute care hospitals, we needed. We never got it. Mm -hmm. We got an executive Uh, ORDER FROM OUR PRESIDENT TO SAY, LISTEN, ALL POSITIVE TEST RESULTS GET REPORTED TO THE LAB JUST REPORTS THEM. Mm -hmm. NOT MUCH OTHER INFORMATION OUTSIDE OF TEST GOES. AND THEN THE CDC HAD A a LOOSE, VOLUNTARY COLLECTION OF HOSPITAL REPORTING, BUT THINGS GOT uh, SO TIGHT IN TERMS OF TENSION. Uh, I'LL NEVER FORGET uh, FORMER uh, GOVERNOR COMO SAYING, LISTEN, WE'RE GOING TO RUN OUT OF VENTILATORS. General Motors. We're going to ask General Motors to, to to make ventilators. And former President Trump was saying General Motors. I said, my gosh, you know, I used to live in Detroit. Uh, you, know, I, you know, these types of plants, you, you know, are not you can't make precise medical equipment right. in an automobile plant. But just that just exemplified the desperation that we had in not knowing what was going on. Another example was this giant medical relief boat that went up into New York and into the harbor. It's because we didn't know what hospitals were overflowing which ones weren't. There was there was this panic, but we just needed data, because we actually have a robust hospital system. Mm-hmm. And if this was just a matter of distributing patients to the hospitals with capacity, we could have done it. In fact, the CEO of my former uh, hospital, um, William Beaumont Hospital in uh, uh, Royal Oak, Michigan, uh, published a uh, op-ed or a news piece where he just flabbergasted, saying, listen, we have to report where the patients are because the paramedics don't know where to go. They can't be taking patients to hospitals that are overflowing. So it was that panic going on Mm. that also solidified in my mind that the hospitalizations were a key outcome. And no matter what, we needed leadership to say that we are going to reduce these hospitalizations and deaths. And the only opportunity to do that is in the pre-hospital period.
0: Well, and this is and this is about mid 2020 or so uh, when this when is this about mid 2020. yeah you Now one of the things um, that that's uh, a point of controversy right now as we talk about testing is the PCR test and its validity for what we're doing. So what are your thoughts around PCRs being the, the determinant as to whether somebody is infected or not?
1: Because SARS-CoV2 is an RNA virus, and it's possible to detect strands of RNA in secretions it was amenable to the polymerase chain reaction test Mm -hmm. and originally our center for disease control since they had dealt with other outbreaks had methodology for a polymerase chain reaction that could be applied to SARS-CoV-2 and it was based on certain targets. The one I'm aware of is what's called the polymerase, one of the enzymes in uh, SARS-CoV-2. But it's a pretty short strand of RNA and uh, when there was this initial desperate call for some way to test for the virus.
0: No tree. I'm really uh, excited uh, for this interview. I've been anticipating it because uh, I follow the high wire very closely. Uh, it's really one of the best places I get my information from to keep myself updated. Uh, and you're, you're certainly making some waves and attracting some attention because of how deep you've been dying it, diving into this subject of, uh, of COVID and everything that there is surrounding it and the uh, And the people that you've been interviewing for the high wire and, and the depth that you've been going into it has been uh, admirable so uh, so thank you for taking the time to uh, share what you've been doing with us.
2: Patrick, I'm looking forward to it too. It's always great to do these interviews with you. Uh,
0: so I'm looking forward to see what, you know what where this all goes. <laughs> I'm sure it will be a good place uh, but let's let's just start if we can with your background so people understand how you got to be doing you know what you're doing because uh, you had a background in, in TV and TV production. And then suddenly, uh, here you are with your, your own show that's become hugely pro- popular, The High Wire. Uh, but how did you get here?
2: So, I started out really, my goal was to be a filmmaker. I'd landed in Los Angeles and I'd written screenplays and I was sort of moving in that direction. But as fate would have it, you know, all of that shifted really uh, looking back now, the benefit of hindsight, when a friend of mine called and said, Hey, Dell, I, I know you know how to shoot camera, in, and we need an extra videographer. On the Dr. Phil show, it was like this Love Smart Island. It was like a whole weekend on an on Catalina Island. Could you do it? I said, sure. Um, that changed my life forever. I didn't know it at the moment, but uh, you know, I was there. I was a, just a backup camera person. Somebody said, "Look, that couple's arguing over there. Why don't you run over and um, do an interview real quick? Can you just... We don't have any producers around." So I did, and it went well. The next thing I knew, I was traveling all over the country for Dr. Phil, interviewing families and you know, people going through these crazy situations in their lives. And then the Dr. Phil show created created this show called The Doctors, and. Um, uh I was brought you know I was sort of teamed up with this brand new executive producer that was going to attempt to turn medicine and you know um disease into daytime television Uh, And we did. And so through that job and and sort of setting that up, I I started scrubbing into ORs and shooting surgeries and and then doing stories about cutting-edge techniques. And so that um, I was on that show, The Doctors, producing for six years. I won an Emmy Award uh, doing it. And it was amazing, you know, really, because I had never really been to a doctor um, in my life. My mom would call me and say, yeah, what are you doing working on a medical talk show? You've never been to a doctor in your life. And I said, I don't know. It's a really weird journey I'm on here, but I actually enjoy it. And I, and I found um, that as I was you know, producing these shows about science and medicine, I was reading more and more medical journals and peer-reviewed studies and you know, breaking stories on science and health. And I remember once, like, looking at this, reading through this medical journal, which at that point was still about half of it seemed like it was in Chinese. I mean, I'll have to admit, you know, you sit there, like, looking up the big words, trying to, but I got the idea. But I was sitting there reading this medical journal and and thinking, man, I wish I could go back to my 18-year-old self and say, in your future, you are going to be reading medical journals. Um... But I found a passion for it, and so that was, you know, what I was doing. And, you know, I actually was interviewing Zach Bush, who I know you know. And uh, Zach, when I interviewed him, I said, how did you get here? And he talked about how he might have ended up being a mechanic or maybe an engineer until he accidentally ended up working with his aunt, who was a midwife, for a summer and then realized, oh, my God, I've got this passion in medicine. I feel very much the same way that had this all happened earlier, I probably would have gone to med school. Had my parents ever sent me to a doctor, who knows, maybe I'd be a doctor (laughs) right now but so there was a real passion there and then while I was working the doctors I got tipped off by an inside source that said that there was going to be a whistleblower coming forward inside of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention um, named Dr. William Thompson and that he was going to put out proof that they were committing scientific fraud on the vaccine safety studies and specifically the MMR, the measles, mumps, rubella study that looked at autism done by the CDC between 2000 and 2004. So I went, as I always did when I had a breaking story like that, to the executive producers of the doctors, and I said, look... um, I don't know if this story's gonna pan out or not, but I have a lead and a jump on a story I don't think anyone in the nation knows about. There's gonna be a whistleblower at the CDC that's gonna say that they're committing scientific fraud in the vaccine safety studies. Uh, my executive producers that normally would go just about anywhere I wanted to go with, with the show. I mean, I produced one episode every week. There was about seven producers, but I rated so high. My shows did so well. Normally, I didn't really have to fight for the stories I wanted to do, but in this case, they're like, "Dell, are you crazy? We are not going to attack the CDC, who lets us behind the scenes every time there's a flu outbreak to show the pandemonium. We're not going to go after Merck, who's, you know, a sponsor uh, of this show and, you know, um, we does all the commercials and stuff during our breaks. Uh, so let this one alone. And um, I couldn't I couldn't let go of that story. And so through a miraculous set of circumstances, I ended up teaming up with Dr. Andy Wakefield, who was already um, making a documentary about this story, and we created the documentary, "Vaxed: from Cover Up to Catastrophe, which I think swept the world by storm and really threw me in the middle of this conversation.
0: Yeah, and it, what's fascinating, and I'm wondering what went through your mind when Uh, they said, you know, listen, you know, this is is a a real story, but we can't run it for commercial reasons. What was your, like, response to that? Because I think a lot of that's going on now. That was the first whiff of censorship that you got saying, you know, we can't talk about this.
2: Well, to be honest, you're always dealing with some censorship, right? It's not lost on anyone inside of media, you know who's funding the work that you're doing you know you you only have to step on you know that third rail once or twice before you go oh i just don't go near these types of stories and you know so i wasn't shocked i you know that they they didn't want to do the story um it's to be expected and there's a way that it's said where you just know there's no pushing back here this is going nowhere and so that was the meeting um but you know, as I think what shocked me the most was not that we wouldn't do the story. Um, I had assumed that since this was such a big, breaking story, and, and no matter how you told it, right, either you really do have a whistleblower that's showing that they have committed scientific fraud on very important safety studies that would affect our children, Or you're doing a story on the fact that they need to do a better job at human resources at the CDC because they have a lunatic working there that is, you know, spreading lies. But either way, it's a big story. And so I figured, you know, Fox and CNN and MSNBC and NBC, they're going to jump on the story. New York Times. And then once they do, I'll go back to my executive producers and say, well, now that this is a big medical story, why don't we give the doctor's perspective and let me do that? So I thought I was still going to get an end to the story, I just wasn't going to get to break the story, which is sort of what you want to do as a journalist. What shocked me was when no one in media covered it. You know, two weeks later, just as I was told, these recorded interviews of this whistleblower came out and he was saying things like, every time I see a child with autism, I feel guilty. We hid statistically uh, significant information from this study, you know, and I, and I just thought, this is huge and no one's covering it. Uh, in fact, even CNN had at that time this eye report where people could just put up reports in their local area, and someone put up whistleblower inside of the CDC, and it came down almost immediately. And um, that, I think, was the most shocking moment, because I think I knew that my medical talk show was being funded and essentially produced by the pharmaceutical industry. That's the moment I realized, all of television is being controlled by the pharmaceutical industry, um, and that was the shocking moment
0: for me. yeah, and there's relevance here, you know, as we fast forward, because the trust that we're putting into the CDC, you know, which has this history that you just described, um, you know, as far as saying, hey, we can trust what's coming out of there, and we have to remake society basically based on what the CDC is saying. And people don't really understand that uh, it's a very flawed organization. Um, so I, I think that backdrop is very relevant to this conversation.
2: Well, it absolutely is. And I think it's the hardest part of the work that you know, people like you and I um, do, uh, which is trying to get through to people that these agencies and these uh, icons like Tony Fauci that you have sort of been raised to trust uh, really are not trustworthy. Um, And so when we find ourselves in the middle of a pandemic and we're being told people are dying all over the world and we've got to save our brothers and sisters, you know, we think most people think, I mean, that must be true. Who would lie about that? And, you know, and then when we find out from those same sources that, you know, hydroxychloroquine doesn't work and ivermectin doesn't work and budesonide doesn't work, we think... Well, that must be true. Why would, you know, the head of a health department or the head of the NIH, or why would the CDC, you know, keep me from taking a product if it works? And then if they tell me the vaccine works, certainly it must work. If they tell me it's safe, it must be safe. You know, but what we don't realize is really what's behind the scenes of how all the decisions have been made. And that's been the journey that I've been on uh, for this last five years.
0: Dr. Malone, thanks for taking the time to sit with us and uh, tell us what you know about this particular subject. Um, I'd like to start out really with your background, your academic background. Uh, Can you kind of give us the evolution of it, starting with medical school maybe?
3: Yeah, it really goes a little deeper than that. Um, I had been a computer science student for the first two years of my undergraduate and decided I didn't want to continue staring at a computer screen in a room with no windows. And I wanted to go into molecular biology, and, and this was a hot new topic at the time. This is uh, early 1980s. Mm-hmm. I went to UC Davis for my last two years of undergraduate training, and uh, the, the honest truth is, my mother was deathly afraid of breast cancer, and I wanted to to spend some time in the laboratory uh, during the undergraduate years to learn whether this was really a good career idea, mm-hmm. and I had an opportunity to join a laboratory in the Department of Pathology at UC Davis and uh, went for my interview with the pathologist there the, who eventually became my department chair later on, Bob Cardiff. And I had done well for my first two years of school and so I tried to be modest but but uh, forthright and say that I, I really wanted to work for him and, and do breast cancer research. And he and he looked me straight in the eye, it, It's something I'll never forget, he says, I have no time for false modesty and that was that was kind of a you're not in Kansas anymore moment right uh, and but he took me in and that turned out to be kind of a seminal event because that he had just come from uh, a fellowship uh, sabbatical with Bishop and Varmus who got the Nobel Prize for oncogenes, and uh, he'd set up the operation together with a guy they just recruited from uh, USC Cancer Center named Murray Gardner to become uh, department chair and uh, Murray had a long history in being at the absolute forefront of molecular genetics and cancer and cancer vaccines Mm -hmm. and uh, they landed there, Murray did, Bob had already been there working on mouse biology mostly and uh, as a pathologist as his experimental area and um, it's happened and this is Davis. Mm -hmm. So, I got to meet people like Don Francis, and I got to see the very earliest days of the whole AIDS story develop, and uh, Murray and Preston Marks uh, and others in the lab uh, group had this observation that there was an immunodeficiency syndrome in the macaques at the primate center, mm-hmm. and they tracked it down and found that it was associated with the retrovirus. Mm-hmm. That was the first disclosure, it was published in Lancet. And it, for me, it, as an undergraduate, uh, you know, total lab rat. Uh, every free moment I was spending in the laboratory working on the molecular biology of, of mouse mammary tumor virus and working with RNA and DNA. Mm-hmm. And this thing happened, uh, this new disease, this new outbreak, and the lab was right at the forefront. Mm-hmm. And uh, Murray traveled. If you can, he, he the, if you've ever seen, and the band played on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Murray went. Uh, with Bob Gallo for this in, infamous trip to visit Luc Montagnier mm-hmm. and uh, François Barret. and uh, I, I never get out of my mind, Murray, you know, this older pathologist almost dancing down the hall after he came back from the trip saying, I've got the virus that causes AIDS in my pocket. Mm-hmm. Then they proceeded to try to develop vaccines, et cetera. And that was kind of how I cut my teeth. There was a lot of heavy politics that went on. You know, those early days of AIDS are pretty intense. Mm-hmm. A lot of incredible competition. And from that, I really wanted to work on retroviruses. What is a retrovirus? Uh, so retrovirus, uh, the, the term retro has nothing to do with the uh, 1950s or <laughs> mid-century. It has to do with the fact that um, the normal, the, the central dogma biology is that DNA makes RNA, RNA makes protein, right? So that's, it's just a linear process. It only goes in one direction. And the odd thing about these, these viruses that were associated with cancer, so this is why it was particularly relevant, is that many of these had the characteristic that they existed as RNA as their genome mm-hmm. when they are a virus form outside of the cell and yet had a DNA form inside the cell. So that's backwards. It's supposed to go DNA to RNA to protein, Mm -hmm. not RNA back to DNA. So that's retro, Mm -hmm. and it has a specific enzyme called reverse transcriptase Mm -hmm. that's responsible for that, that was characterized by David Baltimore and by the guy that eventually became my PhD mentor of sorts in Verma. Mm So that's what a retrovirus is, is it's a virus that goes, um, has a life cycle that's kind of backwards. It exists as an RNA molecule for its genome when it's outside the cell, and then that gets converted into DNA and integrated into the chromosome. Uh, so that's, that's how I kind of got that start. And I wanted to uh, continue to focus on retroviruses. I, I had to, to imagine back in the, just to set the stage, the 80s, were it was insanely competitive to get into medical school Mm -hmm. and to have the hubris to think that you would be able to do so was a little beyond the pale but I wanted to try Uh, and being in this laboratory environment with these guys and the work that I did and the hard work that I showed and my kind of skill set for it um, got me an MD PhD scholarship which was way beyond my expectations but But at the time, you know, it was kind of a fallback. Well, what can I do if I don't get that? I'm probably not going to get it and whatever. Uh, But once I got accepted, I was like, okay, what are you going to do with this? Um, You know, I don't want to be just another doc. I I wanted to kind of carry on with the science. I was totally wrapped up in the science and working with retroviruses. So one of the hot topics for a a young person uh, in this emerging field was gene therapy. And uh, so the gene therapy using retroviruses was the leading method. Gene therapy had actually been around conceptually since the late 70s. Ted Friedman had come up with the idea. But the embodiment that was working was using retroviruses, and you would place your gene of interest into the retrovirus and engineer it in certain ways that it would be packaged and and you could infect other cells. When I made the decision that I wanted to chase this dragon, uh, I, it, I had imagined that there would be gene therapists in every hospital. This, this is going to become mainstream by the time, you know, like the present day. Right. There, would, there would be gene therapists everywhere and we would be burning through curing pediatric disease and all would be good. Um, and so this is what I really wanted to do. And I made it through the first two years of school. And uh, Jill and my wife and I are, grew up in the Santa Barbara area, Central Coast. And I had received a scholarship from Northwestern University in Chicago. And I went for my interview, and it was like a little weather break. Um, and so I came back, and I said, Jill, ah, no, of no, this stuff about Chicago. Chicago's just fine. <laughs> and she will never forgive me. <laughs> um, and will never approve any relocation again. Uh, and, you know, she has, she has executive uh, uh, authority over that. And um, so after two years in Chicago uh, and, a, and a young son being born she was pretty fed up mm-hmm. and my experience was the molecular biology that I was experiencing at Northwestern and that I had access to mm-hmm. there were some great people I did some work uh, on RNA even there but in also with Bob Lamb with influenza mm-hmm. but it just wasn't what I had experienced on the west coast she wasn't happy mm-hmm. so I applied for graduate school in, in lieu of doing my PhD at Northwestern and um, having been now through two years of medical school my GREs were just off scale right. and so I kinda had to pick of the litter. and uh, you see San Diego had these two leading guys Ted Friedman who'd originally imagined it mm-hmm. and Inder Verma at the Salk Institute mm-hmm. uh, and both were working on retroviral vectors and so that's what led me into that whole world and uh, that was the origin of the passion it was about viruses and particularly about
0: retroviruses and particularly about gene therapy so it's uh, interesting uh, that this was uh, a passion as far as um, seeing a potential future for what this could mean to humanity. Um, you uh, and you ended up at the Salk Institute for a period of time. Yeah. So uh, did you finish your uh, yeah, the postgrad work at uh, at the university and then went to Salk? Or so the way the way that it worked um, is that at
3: so UC San Diego at the time, uh, Torrey Pines Road and that whole. La Jolla complex was just taking off yeah. and um, the one of the founding companies in the technology of monoclonal antibodies had recently been sold mm-hmm. for a few hundred million dollars which at the time just seemed everybody thought it was an enormous amount of money right. for a biotech company uh, right. how naive they were <laughs> a friend of mine just sold his company for nine point six billion well wow. and all he does is make RNA and DNA um, but uh, that was that was then and um, so La Jolla was flooded with people that, that, there was a climate, it was like a gold rush. Um, a young faculty uh, thought they were going to get rich. You know, it was, a, it was truly a gold rush. And I kind of landed in the middle of this, not really realizing how much it was going to affect the whole culture of, of the environment, including the Salk. So I went there, and the structure was that you get into the graduate school and um, you have a lot of fairly intensive coursework from leading thinkers. Uh, you know, it's not just the Salk, but uh, Scripps Institute, and I don't think La Jolla Allergy Immunology was there yet, but there was some high-powered folk. At the Salk, there was a half a dozen Nobel laureates when I was there, yeah. and, and plus Jonas was there still, including Francis Crick. So it was a, it was a you know, pretty intense environment. There is something akin to it at MIT um, with David Baltimore, but the La Jolla situation was pretty intense. So I parachuted into this, took the coursework, and we had to do rotations as graduate students. And uh, so I rotated through a laboratory that is kind of amazing in retrospect. One of the guys that really wanted to take me on was one of the top Uh, people in viral evolution at the time. He was disappointed I didn't go to work for him. One was Debbie Spector who had just come from the same Bishop and Varmus group and she was passionate, her and her husband were passionate about the possibility that the AIDS virus would interact with the cytomegalovirus which is her core competency. Mm -hmm. And um, One was a guy that had participated in the very first proof of concept of the use of this firefly gene for detecting gene expression, Suresh Subramani was his name, and I spent uh, my requisite couple months in his lab. He, during the time he had just published the first paper on the use of luciferase as a reporter gene, and that turned out if there's like one thing that I could put my finger on that said this is what made all this possible, it was that luciferase firefly gene, <laughs> and and it was totally a you know ping pong. The whole story is is a story of of um, you know, truly being surrounded by giants, intellectual giants, and uh, this, this amazing brew of ideas and technology that was coming out. And So I did my rotations there, I did one with Enders Lab, and, and I, I, I talked to Ted Friedman, and uh, he said, no, 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 I'm not going to take you in my laboratory to do retroviral vectors because they're not working very well. And uh, what I want you to do, if you want to come in here, is develop an ordered cosmid library of a chromosome. And I'd spent plenty of time doing sequencing, and I thought that sounded like the most boring thing I could possibly imagine. And if I had done that, I would have been at the forefront of the Human Genome Project, (laughs) but, you know, it's how it goes. Um, He was right, probably, in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways, that 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 would have been a much more appropriate uh, career track. Mm -hmm. But I really wanted to do gene therapy. And so, Inder's Lab is across the street. Uh, the Salk is an amazing place. Mm-hmm. It's brutalist architecture, um, but but fantastic, with, with really elements of kind of Persian garden in it. It's got this little water trough and marble and everything. It sits on the cliff in La Jolla. It's a very amazing, imposing, um, really, uh, temple to vaccines mm-hmm. um, on, on the cliffs in La Jolla. And the chance to work there, I was just um, overwhelmed by, by that opportunity, but Ender's lab was an amazing pressure cooker. No, uh, no graduate students, and I'm the little graduate student in the corner and doing weird stuff uh, outside of the mainstream of the main focus of the laboratory. And one of the postdocs kind of took me under his wing a little bit, a guy named Dan St. Louis, he's still in San Diego, and he was doing a series of studies where he was taking retroviruses, putting them into mouse cells, Causing those mouse cells to contract into a little ball in cell culture, and then implanting them into a mouse. Okay, and uh, hopefully this, the the this transplanted cells will continue to produce the protein that the retroviral vector had conferred. So this was a gene therapy type study structure question, um, and uh, Dan went through all this and the cell culture and whatnot and the mice and and they only produce the protein for about three weeks and uh, this was a big conundrum. A lot of the focus of the laboratory was on fundamentals of gene expression and and so normally you know as you'd expect everybody's mind went to oh there must be something fancy going on about gene expression control uh, and um, I kinda dug out the medical textbooks and and came to the conclusion no no no, this is an immune response because of the timeline Against the foreign protein, mm. which was heresy, because if that was the case, it would call into question the whole logic of gene therapy, mm. because the the basic idea is that you take, for instance, you know Ted Ted Friedman came up with the idea. He's a pediatrician, so the idea was how to correct inborn errors of in metabolism in, in infants mm. in a pediatric environment people that have genetic defects, like cystic fibrosis or muscular dystrophy. What they hadn't thought through was that if you take the good gene that would not have the disease and transfer it into the patient, the patient's immune system wouldn't see that as a good gene or a bad gene, they would see it as a different gene. And they'd mount an immune response against it. That's what Dan's work showed, and that was heresy, because it meant the whole house of cards, the logic structure around gene therapy would fall. And it did, over the next three or four years, uh, but, but I had this insight, and, and so what do you do with that? You know, I've come into this all passionate, this is going to be my life, and, um, but I had some background in vaccines, and so the aha moment was, oh, we can, I like to say we can make lemonade out of lemons. Mm-hmm. We can use gene therapy technologies for purposes of eliciting a vaccine immune response.
0: And uh, so that kind of set that whole thing in motion. And he says that that is the breakthrough, right? I mean, it's basically you use the great analogy of uh, lemons into lemonade. It was this was a discouraging result, unless. You say, you, know, you say, well, maybe there's a, actually a positive function to what we're observing, even yeah. though it's not what you were hoping for. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's how you basically came to this idea.
3: So, so to read forward, the, the senior postdoc in the lab was this guy named Dinko Valerio, mm-hmm. And uh, Dinko was, had moved beyond retroviral technology and was at the very forefront, this is late 80s, mm-hmm. of, of this new technology for gene transfer called adenoviral vectors. Mm-hmm and uh, so he was pioneering this at the time in Inder's lab and uh, when he left the lab he formed a company called Crucell focused on gene therapy and and I left the lab and had my excursions and we met back about three years later at a gene therapy conference and he came to me and he said Robert you know what you were right Um, I'm gonna take Crucell and stop the focus on being a gene therapy company and turn it into a vaccine company. Yeah. Crucell got sold to J&J, and that is the technology, that's still the same cell line that they use for producing the J&J um, uh, vaccine for COVID. Wow. So both, all of these vaccines all trace back to kind of that bing <laughs> <laughs> moment at, at the Salk, uh, which was you know not what anybody was looking for. It wasn't where Ender was at. Mm. And I filed patent disclosures on, on uh, use of RNA as a drug and other things. As, as this was proceeding, so Dan had his thing, and that was the start of the thread of ooh, vaccine out of gene therapy, kind of, OK? But the RNA work kept going on. It did get published, it. though, I think. You know, yeah, so, you're so the, the um, PNAS paper was way ahead of its time. Um, I think what year was that published 1989
0: and that's the earliest published reference we could find right now Yeah. so
3: some claim that there is an earlier reference from about eight years before that's relevant there was a uh, that I was completely ignorant about but you know ignorance does no no files no patents were filed um, from that no claims were made it involved uh, using classical liposomes and RNA to prime immune responses in uh, cultured cells. Okay? It doesn't work with classic uh, liposomes, right? No, it doesn't. Yeah. And, and so nothing ever came of that paper, but uh, those, my detractors cite that as the prior art. Um, so I acknowledge that, that that exists. I didn't know it at the time. And it's a very different
0: technology. So basically your seminal paper was 89. You are also listed on the patents as an inventor? Yeah, so the salt ended up filing a patent
3: Uh, So, I had done all these patent disclosures on RNA as a drug, etc., and they had gone through a formal process of determining who is to be the inventor, because this is central to a patent. If you you don't have people who should be inventors, the patent can be disqualified, and if you include people who aren't qualified to be inventors, then the patent can be disallowed. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's an important thing to do. And they'd gone through this process and determined that Inder was not an inventor, Mm Um, but then Ender had objected to that, uh, and so in the end, they filed a patent in which uh, they named Inder and myself as the inventors of RNA as a drug based on all this technology and, and formulations and stuff. And they sent it to me I, on request. I got a copy of it in 1991. They filed it in '89. They actually filed it on the same exact date that all of the Salk patents, I mean all the Vical patents were filed, which is an odd thing. And that's another part of the story, uh, but um, they did file that, and then they somehow withdrew it, but didn't tell me, and lost all records of having withdrawn it. And so when they've been contacted about this, and you know, trying to recreate the history of this, their position is basically, we don't know anything about this. Um, so I left, and what happens next is the lawyers, and I get plugged into a really high quality lawyer in in downtown San Diego. And spend days with him, just you know, just brain drain. What can this be used for? How can you use this new? Because they want
0: to file all these patents.
3: And uh, did they get awarded? Yeah, there's nine domestic U.S. awarded patents out of all that.
0: All related to the mRNA technologies and DNA and DNA. Yeah. Okay, Okay,
3: so it's mRNA and DNA. Um, So for all that is the basis Mm. for this when we talk about mRNA and DNA vaccines. And those didn't come out for a number of years. They were the the findings were disclosed in 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 these manuscripts and also in various academic meetings. And then and then the technology was sold to Merck. Part of the Merck deal was that Merck got to take credit and uh, for the discovery. And so there was a downplaying of what I had done and the people that followed me immediately. One is mentioned in the. Atlantic piece, Stan Gromkowski, he's the one that's got the salty statement at the very end. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody that knows Stan knows that that was his quote because that's pretty much exactly how he speaks. (laughs) Uh, Stan was brought in to do the cellular immunology after I left. I I left after about four months. Mm -hmm. Frustrating that my ideas, again, were being taken. Other people were taking credit for them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'd filed another patent disclosure on a nuance of making the RNA more stable And had my supervisor countersign as as the inventor when he had not even understood it. And I just was, you know, it's just that's the environment, though. Everybody is so much of a pressure cooker, and and there was money and fame and everything else on the line. Um, And all the ideas roll out, and uh, the patents get filed. And uh, like I said, there's like four of them that all get filed on the same day that Ender's, the Sulquin goes in. Um, And that forms the basis for kind of the new Vical. That wasn't part of their business plan. And Maurice Hilleman uh, had, this had been pitched to him, who is the great vaccinologist that really drove Merck vaccines in, you know, with the pediatric vaccines that we know of. And he became enamored of it. And uh, so the deal was Vical was cash strapped that I forget what they got. It's like 6 million bucks or something. It wasn't a huge amount, but at the time it was uh, for this tech. Doug Richman had set up all the work and done the initial, built a team and done the initial proof of concept for using it for flu vaccines. Mm -hmm. And uh, Merck swooped in and said, okay, well, if we're going to do this deal, we want to be able to take credit for this. And so they took the work that Doug and the VICAL team had done, um, built off of the work that I'd done, and um, basically took it, reproduced some of the experiments, and put that as a science paper but put their own people as uh, the yeah. first and senior and that kind of stuff and didn't even put Doug on it. It's Doug Richmond is now an emeritus at UC San Diego and runs their AIDS group and so he's a very senior, well-established
0: guy. He's still pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you've got publication that's citable, right? Uh, I, I believe also it's referenced in other subsequent publications, right, that people are using you in their references from the work that you did. Um, so it's, there, there's objectivity around being able to say, well, okay, there's the story, but then there's, there's the publication, the patents, that are filed, et cetera, that shows the timeline of when you were there well, and what and you then, were doing.
3: And then this comes to the present when I get this phone call from a Swiss journalist mm-hmm. saying, uh, I'd like to talk to you because we think you were the first. And, I, and I'm like, well, oh, I haven't, you know, thank you very much. Uh, um, actually, the first time I caught wind of this, that people were going to acknowledge me was at a vaccines conference that I was one of the kind of organizers or chairs for um, up in Boston in uh, like September uh, uh, 2019 so right before the outbreak happened and there was a presentation from a German scientist that cited both of those papers Mm -hmm. and he was talking about mRNA vaccines and uh, I was just blown away because it was the first time I had been acknowledged uh, in my memory, I mean it brought tears to my eyes um, and this is you know thirty years later and uh, i 'm not even sure he knew I was in the room. He must have, but he specifically called me out and i i 'd never had that experience. Mm-hmm. Then I get this phone call from this Swiss journalist, and um he wants documents and uh so my wife pulls out, we've got boxes and boxes of the old data, my old lab books and the primary data, the actual disclosures, um, all of this stuff, the original documents. And uh, so she starts pulling it out for this Swiss journalist and sending him copies of this, that, and the other thing. And then um, and then she decides to all upload it all on her website and write her own narrative about what actually happened. And... Um, and she's so aggravated at the press putting out these other stories that other people that came about a decade later were the ones that had had launched all this, um, that she takes her narrative and puts it into a mailchimp blast because we've got a mailing list of about three four thousand, you know, s- hardcore scientists that we have built up over the years for the consulting business, and she sends it out to everybody, and that just sparks off. Uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, because it's, it's contrary to the dominant narrative, right. which gets back to our, you know, core theme here, because yeah. um, this has already been promoted by BioNTech because Katie Kuriko is a BioNTech VP mm. and promoted by UPenn very aggressively. Mm. UPenn has the patent on this improvement about the use of pseudouridine mm. as opposed to the standard uracil um, that makes the RNA somewhat less immunogenic and makes it work a little bit better. Mm. And the storyline that's been promoted is that this is a sen- an essential an enabling finding. Now it's not, as shown by the CureVac company that doesn't use that technology. And in my opinion, the, the true enabling technology between then and now was largely led by uh, Peter Cullis, P-I-E-T-E-R, he's never talked about. Uh, Dr. Peter Cullis and his team at University of British Columbia and he spawned three or four different companies there. And that had to do with the nuance of the charge, the nature of the chemical charge, the amine. Um, And he uses a tertiary amine that changes its charge based on pH. And what we were using was a quaternary amine, which is forced to always be positive structurally in the organic chemistry, uh, that is then linked to the lipid that condenses around the RNA. So Peter, is in his group developed this uh, improved formulation method uh, and many others have contributed that to also, but I think Peter and his group get the most credit and that's what's made these amazingly potent formulations for use in humans uh, that are built off
0: of that old idea so why was there like so we're going back thirty years or so that question yeah, okay. yeah, and suddenly, here we are and yeah, these things are being rushed to market. Wh- why did it take 30 years to get them developed to a point where, is there something that's, so that's still a great, great question? Point, yeah. And I think there's going to be other uh, um, media
3: coming out about that. Um, uh, there might even be one in Nature. I'm not sure. I know that there's an article being written. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what happened was that Vikel and then Merck buys it, has this enormously broad patent estate that covers the whole domain um, in terms of the applications and the concepts and the fundamental formulation and everything. And they sell it to Merck. Merck spends something like a billion dollars to try to develop a product, but they make a strategic decision, and ViCal did also. Both When I left, basically, I don't think there was anybody that was very good at making RNA. I think, I think that's what happened. Um, and, uh, but DNA is easy to make, dead easy to make. And so they thought, okay, RNA, DNA, we can do this with DNA. Mm-hmm. And it does, DNA vaccination works really good in mice. Mm-hmm. So why not? Um, so Vikel made the decision to just focus on the DNA, not on the RNA. And then Merck mirrored that decision when they bought the rights, and they only focused on the DNA. They ended up going up to a milligram in injection, and they never could get it to work. Mm-hmm. And this is true with many others. They chased the, the, the DNA for years. But what Vikel and Merck also did was they very aggressively kept anybody else from developing anything that was covered in any of those patents, mm-hmm. typical pharmaceutical industry behavior, sure. including sending me as a young academic then by that point, after I finished my medical school and gone back and started a lab, mm-hmm. Um, sending me seasoned assist letters mm. saying that I should not work on anything that I was working on before because that was the terms and conditions of my employment. Mm. People are sometimes people say, Well didn't you get rich from this? No, I got I got one Susan B. Anthony dollar <laughs> for the patents. Wow. Um so no, I didn't get any money out of this.